Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Dr. Ira Chesnoff, who will discuss the impact of drug and alcohol usage on child development. This episode is part two of our two-part series with Dr. Chesnoff. So if you missed out on part one, be sure to check it out on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play. Ira J. Chesnoff, MD, is an award-winning author, research, and lecturer. He's president of NTI Upstream and a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. He is one of the nation's leading researchers in the field of child development and the effects of maternal alcohol and drug use on the newborn infant and child. Dr. Chasnoff received his medical degree from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He has authored 11 books. His most recent book, The Mystery of Risk, explores the biological and environmental factors that impact the ultimate development of alcohol and drug-exposed children, and presents practical strategies for helping children reach their full potential at home and in the classroom. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. I think the other side of this too is that um, the, the child or adolescent or young adult could be looked at by the average person, of course they can do this. It's obvious they have the intelligence or they have the, and so then I think some of of these kids really get a lot of shame and scolding and and, and different things heaped on them that really, no, they they really can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so when we work with parents, we try to help them understand you know, how to read the inner life of their child, how to look at behaviors, but go beyond what the behaviors look like and try to get to the root cause of their behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to segue into a, a different topic that you have. I'm surprised you haven't asked me about it, given your, uh, the title of your blog is about attachment. Mm-hmm. You know, I get so many families that come to me to say that we adopted this child at birth, we've given him or her all of our love, and she's not attaching. We, we, you know, something's happening here, and we're being blamed as parents because we haven't been good parents. We haven't been nurturing enough. What you have to understand is there is a neurobiology to attachment, and the two systems responsible for attachment are the oxytocin system and the dopamine system. And it's those two systems in the body, both in the brain, um, that guide uh, human interactions, interconnectedness. And what we now know is that drug use, such as uh, cocaine or heroin, uh, this hasn't been shown for alcohol yet, but I'm sure as we get more sophisticated, we may even find it there. But the illicit drugs have been shown to suppress oxytocin levels in the adult and, in fact, in the pregnant woman. So if her oxytocin levels are suppressed, that means that the growing fetus being exposed to these same drugs also probably has some suppression of the oxytocin system. And then we also know that all of the drugs we're talking about act on the dopamine receptor system. 
So when the infant is born, his readiness for attachment, no matter how hard the parents, whether it's biologic or adoptive or foster work, that child may be biologically at risk for attachment because his oxytocin and dopamine systems have been damaged. Now, this is a whole brand new area of research. It's just beginning to evolve, but I've seen enough cases of this, and there's enough research now that's out there to tell us that we have to work very hard with new parents when they have a baby who was exposed prenatally to drugs and alcohol because they're going to have to work to stimulate the baby's oxytocin and dopamine systems uh, even harder than, harder than under usual circumstances. But it, this is something that I would want your audience to understand. This is a whole new area of research that's telling us all about risk for these infants. Yes, it's fascinating. Um, what, what do you think the stimulation of those systems would look like from the parent? Well, yeah, when we talk with parents, um, one of the key messages we try to give is that children grow and develop in the context of relationships. And that primary relationship is going to be with the parents, whether that's a mother, a father, foster, adoptive, biologic. And so their responsibility is to promote attachment. So we talk about the usual things I think you've probably talked about, skin-to-skin contact, um, you know, uh, when in appropriate circumstances, breastfeeding, because we know breastfeeding promotes oxytocin levels. Um, one of the things I tell, especially adoptive and foster parents, is uh, no babysitters for the first six months. Now, as a grandparent, I can tell you that I want to babysit my grandchildren. And uh, obviously, I get to, not so obviously, but I do that a lot. Uh, but for those children who come into a new home and need to know, need to know who their primary person is in their life, uh, I only want the mother and father there. And that's it. Now, in this day of working parents and, and economic needs, uh, I realize that that's not going to be feasible for a lot of families. I write a lot of letters for families uh, you know, requesting uh, for the health of the infant uh, six-month parental leave. Uh, but, um, you know, it's that, in, that early connection is so important. Uh, so it, those are some of the steps we take to try to promote, you know, kangaroo care is another one. Uh, anything you can do to promote attachment, you do three times over. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're talking about assessment. I guess the, the main, those three domains being important and that you have to go into this, you know, really considering the possibility of this. That's the other thing I think I hear sometimes as well. The mother said she didn't drink. So we kind of check that off. Yeah. You know, and, and Especially in the world of adoption and foster care. Uh, that's an especially difficult issue. So how do you deal with that in a very practical way? We will evaluate a child. If we don't have documentation 
of prenatal alcohol exposure. We work hard to get it. We go through court records, driving records, uh, child welfare records, obstetric records. We look everywhere we can. If we can't get a confirmation the child was exposed to alcohol, we will not make a diagnosis within the fetal alcohol spectrum. However, we often will develop our therapeutic plan as if the child were alcohol exposed because the picture to us looks so clear. So we'll avoid the diagnostic label, but our treatment plan will reflect probable alcohol exposure. Mm -hmm. And that's important because if you read the studies, that's, you know, one of the most common diagnoses as the children get older is attention deficit, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, there are several studies now that show that ADD, ADHD is one of the most common diagnoses these kids get. However, it's a different form of ADD, ADHD. And the, the treatment of it is different than with the classic kid who has genetic-based ADD, ADHD. And mm -hmm. so that's why we take all of that into consideration as we develop our treatment plan. So that's a great segue into what I wanted to, to finish up with, and that is, you know, are there some important, a lot of our listeners are therapists, um, some adoptive parents, but a lot of therapists who, you know, have, um, because they work from an attachment-based perspective, kind of often have kids from the child welfare system or adopted children. And what are some key things that, need to be different about treatment or maybe there's some things that just need to be the same and there has to be more of it like you were saying what are some practical things that kind of need to really be forefront in a treatment plan for these children well i think the foremost thing i would want therapists to know is that medication is not the answer we see so many kids get popped onto medication immediately so from a practice perspective when we have kids we all that have these issues, we always start with therapy and that therapy must include the whole family. Uh, and talking to attachment therapists, I don't think that that's an issue, but you'd be surprised how many therapists, uh, psychologists balk at that idea. Uh, so the whole family has to be involved and we give a good try six, six weeks to two months of therapeutic interventions before we ever consider medication. Mm -hmm. now, there are some children who, in fact, are a danger to themselves or others, and so that's the exception, of course, but that's rare. So the first step is design a therapy that meets the needs of the child and the family, and that therapy is a dyadic model. Uh, secondly is provide significant input, psychoeducational input, to the parents. So they understand biologically, and I use you know, drawings of the brain to show what's happened to the child's brain from, uh, these, uh, from the prenatal exposures or even from early trauma, same kind of thing. Uh, so they can understand what's going on and what the best approaches are. And then with the child, uh, on the child's side, focusing on self-regulation, getting the child helping him learn how to regulate his behaviors and his emotions. And as he gets older, using uh, biofeedback, uh, muscle relaxation exercises, 
uh, there are a variety of ways to do that. In fact, we've published an article on, um, on a therapeutic modality that we developed called Parents and Children Together. Uh, it's for children with prenatal alcohol and drug exposures. It's specifically for children from six to 12 years. And uh, anybody can go to our website and request the article and we can send it out. Um, so um, those are the three main components. Mm -hmm. Parent psychoeducation, focusing on self-regulation in the infant or child, and then everything in a dietic model. So I think those three components are where, where you need to focus. Are there any specific dyadic models you're keen on? You know, um, no. <laughs> I would say, you know, fitting, fitting a particular model, we use a lot of um, uh, CBT, uh, especially trauma-focused CBT for some of the older kids, and, but always, again, in a dyadic model. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen PCIT, parent-child interactive therapy, work in some cases, but uh, no, we don't decide what, quote, model we're going to use okay. until we really see the child. Yeah, yeah. I'm a TheraPlay trainer, so I do have oh, a bias. Oh, well, TheraPlay, <laughs> oh, God, I can't believe I forgot Phyllis would, would really be upset with me. But, yeah, uh, most of our, a lot of our interactions are based in the TheraPlay model. Now, um, we had worked with Phyllis and her team uh, and have done a lot of cross-training. Yes. So that we've adapted the TheraPlay model in a variety of ways to meet the particular needs of the children. Uh, but yes, TheraPlay. Oh my yes. goodness. Yes. That. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thanks, thanks for the little hint there. I would have been right <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, and I, I think the final thing I, I want to ask, I'm thinking about everything you're saying and wondering if um, sometimes this diagnosis is avoided because it's lifelong. You can't just go to therapy for a while or take a pill. I wonder if it's a very hard diagnosis for parents to hear. And have you found like support groups are helpful or, or anything like that for the Looking at the parent side instead of the child to, to yeah. wrap up. Looking at the parent side, I'll tell you, here is my most common experience. I have a family that's come in and they have been through hell and back with all sorts of medications and therapies and blame, blaming them for it because they're bad parents. We evaluate the child and when I have to break the news to them that your child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, something within, and here's what's happened to your child's brain prenatally. Overwhelmingly, the most common response I get is both parents will start crying and will look at me and say, everybody said it was our fault. Mm. So they're relieved. Now, the hard work then starts, but it, re it relieves some of the guilt Mm -hmm. uh, from the family that they've been doing things wrong and that's why the child is the way he is. Mm -hmm. So that's the most common reaction. Now, another component of that on the other side is as they begin to learn more, they will become angry with the birth parent. And so therapeutically, you have to address that also uh, and bring the focus back to the needs of the child. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of disrupted marriages and relationships over these issues. We get one parent who downplays the issues and the other parent who uh, really understands what's going on. And so that's why this is a family, uh, family process. Mm-hmm. The entire family with both parents have to be involved. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, thank you so much. I know you're quite busy. I, I'm on my head spinning just from how many things you publish. You know, <laughs> having been involved in just a couple articles, I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this. It's a such an important issue. And I want people to know where they can find your resources and your books and some your your film you mentioned. So if you could share that before yeah, we close. Uh, if you go to our website, N T I as in National Training Institute, NTIupstream.com. Uh, what we're trying to help professionals and families do is go upstream and focus on prevention, early intervention until things start falling apart. So ntiupstream.com, we have a wealth of information, free materials. You can request any articles that I've mentioned today. We can't post articles because of copyright issues, but if you request an article, I can send it to you. Mm-hmm. So uh, just uh, go look on our website. That's the best place to go. Okay, and then evaluations. Um, I know your clinic in Chicago does a comprehensive evaluation, and I know that they're very multidisciplinary, comprehensive evaluations. So I, I want right. to mention that to people because you know some parents are traveling from far away to 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 get an evaluation that that is really thorough like that. Yeah, we have uh, we have our main program in Chicago, but. We have helped other, a lot of my work now is helping other communities develop these same programs. So we right. do have programs all over the country. If a family contacts me and tells me where they live, I can give them some options. Uh, we've got programs in California, Arizona, Louisiana, um, Illinois, of course. Well, we've in several states. And so we just need to hear from you and give you a recommendation. All right. Well, fantastic. And thank you again so much for your time. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.